If you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me this morning to Ephesians chapter 3. God's infinite wisdom put on display in the church. God's infinite wisdom displayed through the church. We're going to probably spend just a little short mini-series in this. There's so much truth here about the church, kind of opens up to much more. This is the kind of the conversion passage. As we hit the end of last of the third chapter, uh, we move in from the indicatives, in other words, what God has done, what he indicates he's done for us in salvation, and move into chapter four to the imperatives what he calls us to do as the church. And it is here in 310 that we get this just tremendous mile deep truth that the church is somehow showing the manifold wisdom of God to all the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. I don't even know where to begin on that because uh, I've worked in this passage a little bit and it all fits together so beautifully and it all builds on itself So I hope that I can express that to you well this morning, because it's in knowing this, I think we find our greatest strength and comfort as human beings who call Christ Lord. So it's in that I want to speak to you about a little bit this morning. Let's read this passage. Let's read from verse 7 down through verse 13, and we'll have prayer and we'll get started. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery that's been hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church... The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. And all this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is for your glory. Which is for your glory. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, for our glory, all of creation points to your glory. All of your wisdom is displayed in the church. And all of it, Father, is to show us who you are so that we can know Christ. It's the perfect plan of redemption that you've carried out from before the foundations of the world. All of creation points to a God who loves us, a God who wants to take care of us, a heavenly Father that who has made things for his children to enjoy. And even in our sin and our fallen state, it is for our glory that you send your son, Jesus, to die on the cross. Those heavenly things are hard to bring into an earthly perspective. We need to float 10 feet off the ground to grasp these words, I think, at some level. But as we work through this passage this morning, Father, I would just pray that you would send your Holy Spirit into this place, that you would speak directly to the heart of your people. My hope is that they would leave greatly encouraged, that they would leave this place greatly encouraged this day because they are the church. 
all of this, everything that you're doing is for our glory and your greater glory. We're the church. We're the ones who have been set apart and redeemed in Christ, who you've called before the foundation of the world. You've cleansed us of our sins. You've set us in a place we did not deserve to make a testimony that we could not make short of your work in us. And that testimony is to the rulers and authorities in heavenly place. It is to the angels in heaven. My goodness. Help us understand these things, Father. How they fit in our everyday life and how we can be encouraged over what you've done and what you're doing in your son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, so let's go back and grab Job 40 again this week. Job chapter 40. There's just, it sets it up a question. Job, Psalms, Proverbs. It's uh, close to the last chapter of Job. And we're going to set that up a little bit. And as you turn there, I'm going to just remind you that Paul is working in this digression. All of verses 1 through 13 is a digression. And it's a digression to help his audience understand, which includes us today, that his suffering should not let them think that God's plan is not being fulfilled in this world. And I, I can't let go of that because it's been the kind of the guiding light here. Paul started out by saying, I'm, I'm thrown in prison because I was preaching the gospel to you, but it's going exactly as planned. So he ends in verse 13 there. He says, and don't lose heart for what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. In other words, it's God's working out of his plan through all of time. And it is uh, at different times and different places from different vantage points. It looks like it's failing. It looks like Christians are being persecuted, and they are. It, does, it more than just looks like that, but it makes it look like God's work is not being done in this earth and in this place. Or that it's less important than it is. Or that we shouldn't pay as much attention to it as we should. But that's just the opposite of what Paul's saying. He's saying, don't lose heart. This is for your glory. This is going to make you sore. If you grab a hold of these things, we talked about this last week to some extent. You're going to soar through life, even in the worst parts of the time. Because, beloved, what he's saying today is that all of his wisdom is being manifested through you, the church. <laughs> right? So we kind of paraphrase that because the, the human being of us wants to see the wickedness, the sin, and go, oh, I can't do this. It's too tough. I can't. Even my sin. Could God use me? How could he use me? I'm so sinful. How could this be a plan that he's working out through me? So we go back to Job chapter 40. And I, I, this was, by the way, do you remember on June, whatever the first Sunday was in June? I don't remember what day it was, but this is the first sermon I preached was from Job 40. And I spent a lot of time in my life in Job 40 because there is a question set up here that is a conundrum to human beings uh, because it's something we can't answer because it convicts us ultimately. But let me just give you a quick history of Job. Job has had these bad things happen to him. He's lost his family. He's lost all of his wealth. He's lost everything he had, right? And he's asking God, why me, God? Why me, God? In fact, he's almost blaming God. Why would it have to happen to me? And what God is confronting is this fact in our minds that we think that good people shouldn't suffer or that suffering shouldn't come to the innocent. The problem is that none of us are innocent or good compared to God. 
It's not that difficult, really, when you know the whole scriptures. But from Job's vantage point, he had no cross to look forward to. He understood that God was going to save him. He believed that God was going to save him. He was just questioning why these things had to be. He said, I'm in vexation of my soul. Uh, Why? I wish I was dead, he said. He was really suffering. And then uh, this all leads up to God finally not really answering his question with a question, right? He didn't really come out and just give him an answer, but he gives Job a question. And that happens in verse 40. And it works so good in this passage because we see suffering today and we go, why does that have to happen? Right? So we begin in verse 40 and just verse 1. And the Lord said to Job, and again, this is right at the end of the book. There's only two more chapters. And the Lord said to Job, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Of course, what God is getting ready to say to Job is here, you have no vision, Job. You can't see what I see. You don't understand the entire plan from beginning to end. God says, adorn yourself, verse 10. Do you see it there? Verse 10, chapter 40, book of Job. Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Close yourself with glory, Job, and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is a proud, verse 12, and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all there in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then and then alone will I acknowledge to you that your right hand is able to save you. Well, what God did had done with Job is looked right at him and said to Job, Listen, Job, if you think this is evil, go ahead. Give it your best shot. Give me a solution for all the evil that you see in the world. And we'd like to think we can do that. Our government works on that all the time, right? They fail miserably at it. We as human beings fail miserably at it. You know why? Because we are the evil in the world. Because when Job starts to put some in the dust and starts to bring down the proud, he has to first bring down himself. And all of us have that same condition. And that's what's going on. Uh, here as we look towards and we've got what we've got in chapter 3 of Ephesians and the book of Ephesians and all of the New Testament ultimately is the fact that we understand God's answer for evil we understand God's total answer for evil and that it will not go unanswered so let's look at that a little bit because the central truth that God's eternal purposes in Christ will not be thwarted by sin or evil in this world it just keeps growing in this passage Paul says that he's in jail for preaching the gospel, but it ends with don't lose heart because everything is working out just like it did. And we worked on verses 7 through 11 last week, and we'll just get through that really quick. Of this gospel, Paul says, I was made a minister. So how is God working out evil in the world? Well, Paul is the best first best example here, is that God was not caught off guard by Paul's evil and sin in his life. It is well known that Paul was a murderer and a persecutor of Christians, but it is also well known that Paul wrote the first uh, 13 books of the New Testament and that Paul would become the greatest missionary to the Gentiles. Now, God didn't stop and go, what am I going to do because Paul's not playing along in my game? Paul had create, or God had created Paul for a specific purpose. Paul's sin and evil did not take God's plan out of the way. What did God do? He met Paul on the road to Damascus with Jesus Christ. 
He heard the gospel. Paul was made, as it says in verse 7, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. So God's plan was not foiled by Paul's evil. God's plan is not foiled by your evil. He can take your evil and turn out to the plans through the gospel and through the forgiveness of your sins, bring in you exactly what he wants you to do in this world. You have purpose and meaning. That purpose and meaning is not lost. God created that in you when he knit you together in your mother's womb. He is still going to work that out in you. If you're not a Christian this morning, he will work that out as soon as you repent of your sins and he begins to work in your life like he did Paul's life. Sin and evil in you or in Paul will not thwart or stop God. And of course, that is the ultimate truth that God uses weak, sinful people. And so this testimony, first of the gospel working in the Gentiles to make a people who were not God's people, singularly in Paul to make a man who was not God's man, God's man. And finally, it grows as God converts souls into the New Testament church. The church is the ultimate outworking of God's plan to thwart and take care of evil in this world. Smile. It's okay. And that is the truth that Paul's telling us. And the church continually makes witness to the wisdom of God. It's God's plan to make a testimony to the wisdom of, uh, the, uh, to his wisdom in his church. So it begins with the preaching of the gospel. It goes to the Gentiles. It goes to people singly and individually like me and you and Paul. And then it grows into the church. And the, gro- the growth into the church makes a total testimony of all the people of all time that God is saving to all the powers and the principalities and the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Oh, and by the way, not only does it shine out to them, but it shines out to the whole world what God is doing and how wise he truly is. So let's just look at this verse 10. Like I said, uh, there's enough here that I want to spend a couple weeks probably on this, maybe even three weeks. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. So that, that's, uh, that's in the Greek, that's a, what's called a hena clause. It's a conjunctive that connects uh, the adverbial phrase, might be made known. So that, the verb, might be made known, who the rulers and authorities are being made known, made this truth is being made known to them. Where is it being made known? In the heavenly places. How is it being made known? through the church, and what is being made known, the manifold wisdom of God. This verse is simple. It's not complex in its sentence structure and how the verb works and where it works because it is explicitly saying that God has done all this so that it may be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places through the church, the manifold wisdom of God. And that's giving it to you in the order that's in the Greek. And the Greek word order is very important in that because that tells us what fits the verb, what, where the action of the verb works, and who receives the action of the verb. So we explain and exegete that just a little bit. It doesn't take much time. It is through the church that God is working to make known to the, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places his manifold wisdom of what he is doing in this world from beginning to end. And... Just get a hold of that just a little bit. Because think about history for me with me just a minute. 
If I ask you to name some important events in history, what would be some of the first things you'd name? A lot of people would say, oh, World War II, the Revolutionary War, right? Uh, 1620, the Puritans came over on the Mayflower. Uh, they began to build a country over here. The, you would name things like the Civil War. You'd name things like Vietnam. You'd name things like uh, the election of some certain president. You'd name things 1776. You'd name the Tea Party. You'd name different things about history, mostly around secular history. But what you've got to understand is that God clumps that all. All of our history is clumped in redemptive history as sin. All of the wars, all of the things. It's not American history that God's dealing with. It's not American history that God's making important or even Indian history or any history of any country in the world. God is making redemptive history the center of what he's talking about here. That means that the church is the center of the sphere of authority. That means the church is the center of what God is doing. That is all of history for God from beginning to end is that he's saving people. He's reconciling the whole world in Jesus Christ. And I'm starting to sweat a little bit here because it, it, we get such a vision on what we think is important. But I want to tell you that it's you, beloved. It's you that's important. It's you that's the center of this wisdom. It's you that amplifies the testimony of what go, what's going on that what God's doing. It's you. It's the church. It's Park Bible Baptist Church. It's every church, every true church that's in this community and around this world that's meeting today. It is the church. So the first proposition is simple. The church is the means, the only means that God has chosen to display his wisdom. The church is the means, the only means that God has chosen to display his wisdom. Beloved, it's not the government. It's not the United Nations, it's not the World Health Organization, it's not the World Economic Forum, International Monetary Fund, World Bank, World Trade Org. It's not the Worldwide Fund for Nature, it's not the AARP. It is the church that displays God's wisdom. It is the church that displays God's wisdom. It is the church that is the means that God has chosen to display his infinite wisdom to the authorities and power in the heavenly places. The church is the testimony. The church fires the torch of God's wisdom. The church is the center of his testimony. The church as the central sphere of authority. The church as a testimony to the angels in the heavenly places. That means both the good angels and the bad angels. It's the church that displays the infinite wisdom of God. That means it's you, beloved, that displays the infinite wisdom of God. How many of you feel necessary to that task? Right? But it is what God is doing in us, in you. Think of it like this. Think of it like this. In this one passage in verse 10, so that through the church, uh, what made God's wisdom might be made known to the rulers, authorities in the heavenly places. It's like a classroom. The cosmos, all the cosmos is a classroom. The lesson plan is God's wisdom. It's being displayed and the students are all angels, both good and bad angels. And the method of the teaching this wisdom to these cosmic powers is through the church. Is through the church. Let me share with you what goes through my mind a little bit as I read a passage like this. When I, when I take a text like this one, it, it soars to a heavenly height. It talks about God's eternal purposes for the church. 
And I think it can leave us really quickly and really easily. So one of the things I want to do is have God show me how I can relate this to people. I mean, we got people here that are struggling with things, right? Maybe some difficulty in your marriage. Maybe you're trying to raise up your children. You're worried about paying bills, juggling your busy work schedule. I was just talking with a guy about that this morning who's just covered up. Maybe you're grappling, grappling with different temptations and sins. Maybe different things are tugging you in different directions. And thinking about God's eternal purpose may be interesting for theologians and, and philosophers and people that just study that. But how does it help people who wrestle with all kinds of everyday, ordinary challenges? How does it help us with what life throws at us? So to answer that question, I think we have to first assume that Paul knew that the people he wrote to in Ephesus were normal people, right? They had all these same sorts of problems. So Paul knew that they would be encouraged by these words, not dismayed. And that's the point of this digression this morning, is that he encouraged them with this understanding of what God's plan is from the beginning to the end, because he knew it would help them understand something about God's eternal purpose as it related to them, the church in Ephesus. They needed to know this, and we do too, because these truths give us life and grace to live the life that we've been called to live. We need to get outside of the day-to-day problems and see just how glorious the church is. And we need to say and put ourselves in the position of the glory of that church because that's where God has put you. So there's something in all this scripture. Paul Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17, he says, All scripture is breathed out by God and it is profitable. It teaches us, it reproves us, it corrects us. It builds us up for training and righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is why it's so important to to teach scripture on a Sunday morning. This is why we grow from God's word. It brings in a grace to us that we can't get from any other place in this world. It helps us to push out the things of this world and take in the things of God. It helps us to revision our focus to what's important in this place. It helps us see through a lens that is biblical so we're not looking at all these extraneous things that bog us down in life. Beloved, we're the church. We're the center of this passage. We're the light of the testimony to the angels and the powers in heavenly places. You people are that. You people and me together, right? So then I have to grapple with these truths and how Paul sets them forth to help us. How, how does it make us, give us more godly lives? What prompted Paul to write all these things? So the answer to how encouraging us, how he's encouraging us through it all is, it's clear that Paul is raising our vision for what God is doing with the church. You know, I think we make church a lot of times secondary. All too often, even among Christians, the church is viewed maybe nice. I'll come, you know, if I'm not too tired on Sunday morning, I, I, I'll, I'll move my clock up and get there on time uh, if it just works out for me. I mean, I've got a lot of other things to do. I'm busy with work. I'm busy with my kids. I'm busy with school. I'm busy with uh, you name it. We can put many things in front of the church, but what Paul is saying is don't do that to the church. Look at what the church is and think about what it means to God and what God's doing through the church and live as if you understand that you are a part of that church. God is bringing all glory to himself as a testimony to all things through the church. 
through the church. So Paul's raising our visions, and I don't want you to I don't want you to miss that. I want you to be encouraged that evil and sin will not stop God. Nothing can stop God. That God uses men who have sinned, the weak among us. That means he uses you. That means he uses me and that his wisdom and that is manifested in the church because we are that church. Take heart, beloved. That's what Paul is saying. Take heart. Don't lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. This is your glory. You are the church. And I will tell you that the world would never agree with this truth, that the church is the answer for evil in the world. The world would never agree to that. In fact, the world doesn't agree to that, and that's why government exists, and a lot of other powers exist that are not biblical powers because they don't agree with that. They want the evil in the world because it brings them power in the world, but the church stands in stark testimony to their wants. So we must not take this truth granted. This is how God is dealing with evil in the world. The church, you, beloved, you are that display of the wisdom of God in the world. The church is that great purchase that God made through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. So not only is it the work in the world and the testimony in the world, but it is the one great thing that Christ's blood has purchased in the world. That is the elect from all of redemptive history were purchased by the one act of history, of redemption, the cross. Again, we're talking about a different history here because if we look at American history, we get bogged down in that. But the Bible doesn't say anything about World War II, does it? The focus of the Bible is on what God is doing throughout redemptive history to push sin and evil out of the world. Now, I would include World War II and the sin and evil in the world and the fightings and the struggle of men in this world. But the history of the Bible is redemptive history, and the redemptive history centers around the point that happened 2,000 years ago when the Christ was given on the cross to purchase our sins. Peter says that, knowing that you were not ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your fathers. In other words, what purchased you to be this testimony of the church was not something simple. It was not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but it was with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. You see, God didn't underestimate these things or underestablish these things. It's us that doesn't see them for what they are. Christ died for you, beloved. Christ died so that you could be this testimony. Christ died to rid you of the evil of your life. Christ died so that you could go to heaven. Christ died so that you could be the testimony and the wisdom of God in Christ. We'll talk about that more in the days to come. It says he was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in these last times. By the way, that's exactly what Paul is saying. Uh, If we go back to verse 3, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation that I've written briefly so that when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations like it has now been revealed. In other words, the Christ, God's work in uh, the, the cross, God's work in Christ at the cross is what revealed and made manifest to everyone what the last time beginning was the tear change had begun what God was doing to rid the world of all evil it is through the recapitulation of all things as he says in verse 10 of chapter 1 it says this that it, and starting at 9 making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him things in heaven and things on earth it's always been God's history redemptive history It's always been God's plan, you, the church. You've always been the center of that. The gospel was about you becoming the church. 
Jesus' death on the cross was about you becoming the church. The plan before the foundations of the world was about you becoming the church. Everything that God has done to redeem you has been about you becoming the church. And that testimony being made to the whole world of what the church is. You become the church by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. Is that nothing in you deserved that. It's shown here in Paul. Paul understands it. He said, I was made a minister of this gospel. Minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. That's in the gospel. He goes on to say to me, verse 8, though I'm the very least of all saints, this grace was given to me. You know why? It's not because of his worth or your worth. It's because of God's plan. God planned exactly what he planned for Paul, and he's planned exactly what he's planned for you. He's made you into the church, and part of that plan is that you're displaying his wisdom in this world and to the world. The gospel is about the worthiness of Christ and the glory of God. So that through the work of the gospel, that is through the work of Jesus Christ, intercessory work on, on our behalf, beloved, God could display his wisdom to everything else. You know what that means? It means that once we were struggling and fighting against each other, and the gospel came, and now we love each other. It means we used to segregate ourselves by race and by sex and by social strata, but the gospel came, and now we're unified in the church. There's no other power on earth that can do the work that God's doing in these people. That's why it makes a testimony to everything else, to all the evil in the world. He has made you. Peter goes on to say in, verse, or in chapter 2, verses 9 through 10 in 1 Peter, that you become a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, this is redemptive history. This is what God's doing through the work of his church. Beloved, there's no other. Turn, to, turn with me to Matthew 16 here. We're going to see some more points about the church from what, what Peter said in Matthew chapter 16. Because this is God's plan for you and it cannot fail. It's his promise. Chapter 16, let's begin in verse 13. This is the first time our Lord uses the word church in scripture, by the way. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Verse 14, and they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Verse 17, and Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this truth to you, but my father who is in heaven. 
And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So not only has God made you into the church, but he's made the church impenetrable. He's made you impenetrable. Nothing will prevail upon the church. That means nothing will prevail upon you. That means nothing will prevail upon your testimony that you're to make to these powers and authorities in heavenly places. And oh, by the way, there's more about who you are as church. Keep reading. Verse 18, and I tell you that you are Peter. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The rock that Jesus is talking about is not Peter himself. It is the testimony of Peter as being changed by the gospel. It's the testimony that only God could give him, that God's given each one of us who call Jesus Lord, Verse 19 is a result of this. It is a result of the authority and the influence and the spirit of the church. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Wow. Church has a lot of power, doesn't it? You're the church. The great worth and value and testimony that you have, that you bring, is made when we gather together each morning to worship to do what has not been equaled by all of creation or the universe or the cosmos. To come together as a people under the gospel whose sin has been forgiven and this causes demons to shudder. Why? Let me just finish with these admonitions. The church is so many things. I've got a list of 50 things that I made. I'm not going to read each one of them. I'll spare you that. But you gather to hear God's word applied to you, your culture, your life, and your community. You gather to use your gifts and to be used of God. You gather so that you could submit to the leaders of the church. You gather for accountability for other Christians. You gather for the corporate blessing of prayer, for the corporate observance of the Lord's table. You gather to be hope for the poor and needy. You gather to be better, understand, and know God and his will for your life. You gather to renew your hearts and minds in the truth of God. You gather to witness the glory of baptism. You gather to practice the one another's with the brothers and sisters in Christ. Beloved, the church is the most important thing in the world. This is why we gather together. And as we come together as different people of different races, we show forth a testimony that cannot be shown forth by any other thing that has ever been created, ever. God is clear in this, that it is through the church. He is divulging his wisdom, his manifold wisdom, his multifaceted wisdom, his variated wisdom. It, the same word is used in the Old Testament to describe Joseph's coat of many colors. You gather on Sunday as the church to understand with all the saints the immeasurable love of Christ. You gather to receive continual reminders of your position and identity in Christ. You gather to be influenced by other godly men and women who love Jesus and teach you how to love Jesus. You get to see the glory of Christ on display in the unity of the church. That glorifies God. It represents the life change in the gospel. You get to teach others in word and deed how to follow Christ. You get to share your sins so another can be made strong by your healing. All of these things are what the church is. 
Beloved, don't underestimate who you are in Jesus Christ. You are the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You make a testimony to all of Christ. God is doing a great work in you. You may feel not worthy, but he is working a work that testifies to all of creation of his wisdom and glory. You may have heard this story before. It's, it's often called the three stones or the three masons story. It's a story about a guy walking up to some workers that are working at a construction site. And there's a big pile of stone there and the workers are working with the stones and they're working to build a building. So the man walks up and he says, I'm going to learn more about what these men are building. So he comes to the first man and he says, what are you doing? What are you building? He said, well, I'm just pecking away on these stones. He comes up to the second man hoping to gain more information about what is being done at the job site. And he asks the second man, he says, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm just trying to earn a living by working. Both of those men truly underestimated what was being done with the stones. So he walks up to the third man. He says, well, I'm going to get some more information from this man. Surely he can tell me more about what's taking place here at this building site. And he walks up to the third man, and the third man drops his hammer, and he looks straight at him, and he says, I'm an instrumental part in the building of a great cathedral. Because it's from these living stones that God is building a great cathedral whereby his praises are sung, his people are renewed, hope is found, and evil and sin is defeated. That's his church, beloved. You are his church. In all of creation, you testify to his wisdom. I hope you feel that this morning. I hope you understand that's your position in the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you live and touch your community around you like you believe that. Let me just leave you with this one last thing because there's always got to be more, right? I'm a Baptist preacher. For the last nine months, I've studied what this school down the road meant to everybody in this community. For the last nine months, I've picked and I've prodded and I've asked and I've tried to find just even a handful of people that hated that school or that had some of the misgivings about why it went out of business or felt bad about what was wrong with it or would tell me something negative. And you know what I found over nine months? In fact, I was even warned that I would be running into a mountain of opposition or that I could be. I've not found one person that will stand in opposition to the work that was being accomplished down there. I've not found anything but positive admonitions of what that church or that school meant to this community through this church. Beloved, I believe that is an exceptional testimony of what God's church is to a community. Well, instead, what I've found is not only a group of kids that went through school there, but are now adults who believe that that is the central portion of why this community is what it is today. <laughs> what I found is a bunch of people that testify that that was a good thing. Why? 
it's really simple to me because that was the church doing what the church does, making the testimony that God's making, teaching God's truth, and witnessing to everybody the wisdom of God in Jesus Christ, his church. All right? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we come to an end this morning, my prayer is that folks would be encouraged that they would understand what the church is, that they would understand that the church is your vehicle for the manifold witness of your wisdom, that they would understand that they are that church and that you're doing that work through them and that there's nothing in this world that can stop or impact that work for the worse. That there's been times all around us where there is places in history where that has been known and felt and that it's known and felt in this community. That it's not waning, but it's growing. (laughs) That you're not going to lose, that there won't be an end to the church, but that it's impenetrable, as Jesus would say. That you would carry the glory of your church throughout eternity that it is all of redemptive history, that's what you're doing in your people, and that we would be encouraged that we are those people. Lord, do that work in your people this day. Give them that encouragement. Help them to know who they are as the church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, if the men that are going to help me with the Lord's table, there they come.